episode 375 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express don't reflect uh, the opinions of our institutions, our firms, our clients, our families, our friends, not even our pets, frankly. Joining me today for the News Roundup, uh, back at last, Jordan Schneider, who's the China tech analyst at the Rhodium Group and host of the really excellent uh, China Talk podcast, which got him a job. Young podcasters remember that. Jordan, welcome back. Oh, so great to be here, Stuart. Okay. And Michael Wiener, right, who is the Steptoe partner we asked to come on whenever there are antitrust issues that uh, the rest of us don't understand. Michael, great to have you. Great to be here. Thanks, Stuart. And Pete Jidel, uh, who is the Steptoe of Council, who deals with international regulation and compliance. Pete, welcome. Hi, Stuart. Thanks. Okay, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS, and the host of today's program, also occasionally Chief Provocateur. Well, look, Jordan has been away for a while, and something really significant has been happening in China every week for a month. Jordan, I don't know where to start. I guess I'm going to ask you <laughs> to go back and, and pick up what we saw as kind of the beginnings of a tech crackdown, and now... Beijing is going crazy, or at least enthusiastic about things like telling big companies that depend on subscribers and network effects they can't take on any more subscribers because, you know, they're mad at Didi because they did a Western IPO. They're mad at ByteDance because of, I guess, data privacy. What's going on with the, the use of that kind of discipline, does it really uh, reflect a complete change about enthusiasm for the internet economy, or is it something more focused? So the answer is all of the above, because over the course of this, you know, this summer, we've seen competing bureaucracies really try to take their own frame and stamp on the industries in which they, you know, have statutory obligations to regulate as well as sort of reach out beyond their traditional purviews in order to, you know, work towards the vision of Xi and the state council, you know, which which encompasses a lot of somewhat contradictory things. So, you know, cyber law took a break. I think the last show I did with you guys was in mid to late June. We had a nice quiet summer in the China tech watching land. But coming back, you know, coming back and, and looking back, you know, three months later, there is a bit of clarity, I think, um, on the sort of overarching principles, which, you know, may not be executed it with with the highest level of clarity, but are the, the threads to watch, which, you know, help explain what's happened in the past few months and may give some clues as to the directions going forward. First off, we have this idea of common prosperity as a new sort of like operating thesis for how the CCP wants to govern society and organize uh, and organize the the sort of both private and, and, and public Jordan, sector. I, I guess I would say that sounds like the Chinese version of our inequality debate. Exactly. I mean, this is this is this is one of the things which I think it's worth going back to in general when looking at China tech regulation is like, yes, the CCP is very different from Congress and the sort of debates that are happening all around the world. But there are also sort of common threads which are play which are playing out in every sort of modern developed and and you know on the 
edge of developed societies, which are also working in working in China. So for instance, yes, I mean, inequality debates is something which is as prevalent in China as anywhere else. And, you know, they're not necessarily expressed through through electoral democracy of people, you know, of, of folks citing Piketty and like AOC wearing dresses saying tax the rich and at galas. But at the same time, you know, those pressures are there. And this then the sort of elite of Chinese commerce has been able to accrue, you know, pretty dramatic gains over the past uh, 15 years. We've seen Xi, of course, try to take this on early in his um in his tenure of of the kind of I guess like political common prosperity is one may, one way maybe to look at the anti uh, corruption crackdown in his first few years and now taking that as a as a model perhaps to look at kind of leveling the, the 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 playing field and 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 sort of focusing gains on different places than just rewards going to you know consumer tech firms as a as an operating principle is, is is an important one to watch going forward so let me let me let me let me go through the checklist of things that 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 Americans and especially the Biden administration would probably say about tech companies and you tell me if they can check that box in China uh, obviously, Making too much money as individuals compared to the rest of the economy. Sure. Okay. So, so I, I think I think I think it's worth it's worth with this list. It's like yes, Biden may think that, but you know the 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 levers. Uh, the levers <laughs> yes, right. with which with which a democratic administration, which which you know controls Congress, can do to sort of realize that vision is 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 very right. different, right? But, I mean, but, we're but, not but, even and, getting an estate tax in the U.S., but but she can could can you know force these firms to donate fifteen billion dollars to you know common prosperity broadly defined. You know, all of these contributions to philanthropies also have been you know in the tens of billions of dollars from these from these CEOs. So you know, I I, I understand your contracts. Stuart, but it's yeah. this is where we go into the differences, he, he, right? Is like no, you no, may I, have that I, inclination, I, I, but you're, you're realizing it right. in a in a in a party state is very different than in uh, than in um, uh, contemporary. It's one thing to say I think the estate tax should be higher, which is what you hear in the United States. It's another thing in China for the the government to occasionally say to people, you know, that estate tax it's due tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> so too much money. Your companies are too powerful in ways we didn't anticipate and don't like. That's classic. It strikes me as that's exactly the, the Chinese response. You are so powerful and your networking effects are so great that you are actually causing harm to the consumers you purport to serve. Also, I think, a common thread. You're right. The difference is what's the government going to do about it? And in the U.S., we're going to agonize over it a while. In China, I guess I would say it looks to me as though she has said, you know, you used to think these guys were protected because they had this glow about them, the new economy and all the money they were making and all the technology they were bringing to us. Don't worry about that. If you've got a, a good reason to hit them, hit them. Uh, and whether it's going to be bribery or taxation or saying the wrong things or being too powerful or privacy, for God's sake, because as though the CCP cared about that, they're going to get hit on all of those because it's sort of free for all for the bureaucrats. I think that's a I think that's a reasonable I think that's a reasonable interpretation of the events. You know, I will say this isn't something that's happened in a day. We've seen these policy signals building on 
on at how state leadership is frustrated with the you know emphasis on consumer economy on on anti-monopoly issues even on data regulatory stuff for for a long time now i do think that the the flip being switched which you know was presaged by you know the anti-po then going through the people being frustrated with dd sort of not reading the tea leaves and you know doing this ipo in the u.s and then culminating with the education sector basically being zeroed out really shows that there is a green light and it's interesting because this this is now bleeding over into folks how folks are thinking about the property sector and Evergrande, which is in the news today. And you know there was this three hundred billion which, is it three hundred billion dollars that they owe. It's just a staggering amount of yeah. money. I mean, I remember like in, in grad school four years ago, this was like the accounting, like how to understand the Chinese, you know, how to understand like Chinese firms. And you look at it and like it doesn't make sense. And then you're like, well, it's OK, because the Chinese government is backing it up because it's too big to fail. However, not, you know, it's pretty clear China is saying now that it's going to let Evergrande go if Evergrande can't find a way uh, uh, forward. And uh, once you've you've ripped off your own employees for loans of hundreds of thousands of dollars each, uh, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of other places you can go. Yeah, it's not looking good for, for Evergrande or the property sector. I mean, this is part of a, a longer discussion, which maybe isn't <laughs> quite the best for this for the cyber law podcast. But what I will say is, you know, this has been a very long time coming. And I think what the the sort of willingness of the Chinese government to do really aggressive regulatory actions in the tech space, in the education space, in gaming and so on, has made their threat that they're willing to sort of watch Evergrande fail and, and watch the private the property um, bubble burst, which is something that everyone sort of knows need to, needs to happen at some point because the fundamentals have not been aligned and haven't in this sector and haven't been for 15 years, um, maybe I mean, five years, have um, have been sort of reinforced by the state's commitment to following through in 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 more tech focused areas. So one last one last thing, I, I think that the, the Evergrande story and the tech story are more related than maybe you do, because I think it's, it's a question of the government is basically setting the terms and tinkering with the terms of competition in both of them. It, didn't work out so well with the property sector. And I think you're going to see the same kinds of problems in the tech sector. And it's my observation as a Washington lawyer that when somebody, when some industry or some individual company is on the outs with the government, there are always three or four other companies that think they can make a whole lot of money taking down the unpopular company or asking for policy changes that advantage them and disadvantage the other guys. So it's not so much that government is stepping in. They're going to have people lobbying them to step in in particular ways. And here's my question. Do you think there's a tech company in China that has handled the government well and is positioned to come out of this doing better than they have in the past? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, there's there's a, uh, a state owned, you know, state invested competitor to Didi where and there were rumors a few weeks ago that they were able they were going to be able to like buy a significant percentage of Didi. You know, the ones that are going to win are not the ones that are listed on the Nasdaq. They're the ones that have aggressive, you know, significant state owned connections are, are run by state owned enterprises directly and are going to be able to ride this broader wave of the government wanting to have more direct control over, you know, over over the economy at large. So I think it's a, you know, this is not an, in, <laughs> there's no invest, I'm not giving out investment advice here, but suffice to say, I think, you know, any firm which is listed has like 
the, the, which is listed and, and is, you know, has tens of billions of dollars of market capitalization in the West. Beijing is probably looking at that firm as a firm that's done too well for itself and probably needs some some potentially state backed competition to to put it in its place. All right. Well, speaking of state backed competition and beating up unpopular companies, let's talk about FTC versus Facebook. Michael, the FTC got slapped around a little by the judge for having a kind of very weak definition in its antitrust case against Facebook of what Facebook's market share was. He said, I don't know where these numbers come from, uh, and dismissed it and said, just come up come up with numbers I understand. Uh, and they've now refiled. Do you think they're, they've done enough to survive a motion to dis- dismiss? So, yeah, they did respond. Well, I, I don't know, but they did respond to the judge's criticisms of, in that regard and, and came up with numbers from ComScore on monthly active users and daily active users and, and, and dwell time and compared them to the tiny little numbers that, that MeWe has and, and that, that Friendster and, and MySpace, if they're still around, would have. They spent more time going into the differences between what they call a personal social networking uh, service like Facebook and Instagram, but but still not WhatsApp and other online services that focus on, on content based on users' interests rather than who users know. And they also add a section on the, the direct evidence of market power. And this is the same stuff they had before about the Cambridge Analytica story and their violation of the FTC consent decree on, on, on users' privacy, which had a $5 billion penalty, which means, yes, that's direct evidence of market power. It's their bad guys, judge. So, you know, is it going to be enough? Facebook says, look, at, at the at heart, this is still an attempt by the FTC for a do-over on its review of Instagram and WhatsApp. And you know what? That's just not. But, you know, I, I think they have made a real effort to respond to the to the court's concerns. Some people pointed out they could have just punted and gone right to, to yeah. part three in front of an administrative law judge, that really would have been kind of craven. I think they had to do this. And yeah, I think there's a much harder complaint to dismiss. My sense that they probably have enough to, 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 to continue the case. All right. So it should be, we'll, we'll be li- talking about this and you'll be, he'll be a continuing uh, feature on our episodes because uh, this is not going to go away for years. I don't I, think so. You may, you, with, with any luck, you'll outlast the uh, podcast itself. All right. <laughs> We're touring the world, it seems like. Uh, let's try the the Persian Gulf and Washington, D.C. Pete, there's been a lot of talk about this case. It, it was in the paper before it was uh, as, a, as a story and a kind of quasi-scandal. And now it's turned into deferred prosecution agreements and an indictment that we can all read. This is the Project Raven case where members of the intelligence community, people who had worked... Uh, for companies or for the National Security Agency doing hacking for the U.S. government, moved to the UAE and started hacking for the UAE under a variety of constraints that the U.S. government had imposed. And those constraints were gradually lifted, sometimes without the U.S. government knowing they had been lifted. And now... uh, the guys who, who stayed on uh, for the entire ride uh, are going to be paying back a couple of million dollars and not going to jail, but they'll never work again in cybersecurity, it looks like. Yeah, exactly, Stuart. It's a really good summary. So, you know, there's been for years, obviously, there's been a huge amount of reporting, criticism about the UAE authorities, kind of global hacking campaigns, you know, Citizen Lab, there's been no shortage of complaints and investigations and exposés on this. And now we're seeing the U.S. government, you know, really kind of 
you could say, you know, joining the side of the critics and uh, coming after, going after some of this activity with a fascinating deferred prosecution agreement, a really unique novel criminal case brought, you know, it's, it's in part kind of a traditional hacking indictment, but it's also got a very unique export controls component under the International Traffic and Arms Regulations, the ITAR. The defense sector export controls. So what um, is what is unique about the ITAR provision? They violated, it says, the TAA, which is the technical assistance agreement that the State Department imposes on people who have licenses. So this was a this was a defense service because it was helping spies hack other governments. So it, it it's something the government had to approve. They approved it with limits, and then the limits fell away, and that's what is the part of the ITAR case. What's what's unique about it? It's well. It's very unusual. I think unprecedented in my, in, to my knowledge, to have this type of ITAR hacking case, a criminal case under the ITAR for for hacking activity for supporting foreign intelligence activity. So this, you know, this goes back more than ten years. You know, it's got this program, this contract with the UAE authorities, supported by a, you know a series of U.S. companies. It's got a you know good pedigree. It goes back to like 2008, I think, with Richard Clark and some other, you know, kind of post 9-11 helping the Emiratis to build up their security and intelligence apparatus part of yeah, it. So and- one of the things that's interesting here is the export that these guys carried out was they took their brains to the UAE and then used them there. This was a defense service. It wasn't some product that was exported. It was just the code that they had with them or probably code they had in their head. And that was enough because they were providing a service to a defense industry or an intelligence industry to be a violation of the ITAR if there wasn't a license. Yeah, I and mean, that's right, but it's actually deeper than that. It's more complicated than that. There were actual exports. There was, you know, there was this Karma exploit, the iMessage exploit, which was, you know, purchased by these UAE government contractors from US vendors, developers, you know, kind of intelligence community contractors. The exploit was not the developers and US vendors said it was not subject to export controls as provided. It was EAR99 because um, it had certain built-in limitations. It kind of provided a notification, a text to the target. It didn't have a built-in data exfiltration. So it was a lawful export. Exactly. It was a lawful export that was misused. And then when they they got it, they they took it apart, they took off the limits, and they went to the essential exploit and further weaponized it and sent it out. And I assume, again, that's because they were using American know-how because they are Americans. Right, exactly. Yes. The, so it was several parts. It was it was obtaining the you know the original U.S. origin exploit software technology, then using that to develop you know what the government called you know specially designed software and systems for intelligence collection. That's what triggers the the ITAR, the Defense Export Control. So it was you know it was an unrestricted export under the Commerce Department jurisdiction. They worked with it, made it covert, made it capable of data exfiltration. That turned it into a specially designed intelligence capability. That triggered the ITAR. They, you know, they were initially operating under this TAA when they were employees of you know, the, one of the U.S.-based 
companies, then the Emiratis, you know, it was kind of a, it was a capacity building contract. So the Emiratis gradually took over and gradually kind of elbowed out the U.S. contractor, substituted a local contractor. These and he US did all the dirty stuff. So he, he did all the stuff the Americans either weren't supposed to do or wouldn't do, mainly hacking other Americans, or at least that was the idea. Looks as though the distinction between what the Americans did and what the Emiratis did got thinner and thinner to the point where either there was no distinction or they did everything except hit return and then stepped aside and let the Emirati step in and, and hit return that went. Right. Yeah. So the U.S. Com- company that had this contract, you know, when these guys, when these former employees jumped ship and went to the, you know, substituted local Emirati company, the U.S. company sent them, you know, letters from outside counsel warning them, you know, We've got an ITAR technical assistance agreement. It's got restrictive terms. If you do this, you're going to be violating U.S. law. And sounds like these guys didn't heed the warnings. And well, you know, they, kept... you, 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 they may have said, "Oh, yeah, this is sour grapes. These guys lost the contract." Not, not right. surprising that they they think that there's illegality at, at risk here. And you know, look, I'm pretty sure that there is a doctrine inside the U.S. government with their contractors that says hey, somebody from government should hit return and the contractor can set up the the exploit, but it's the government that that hits it and then it becomes a government responsibility, which is accurate up to a point. But I think what nobody thought through is just because the UAE is the government responsible for this doesn't mean you can't also be responsible for what they did. That's the nature of criminal conspiracies. If you right. advance the conspiracy, even if you don't you know, shoot the gun, you're, you're as guilty of conspiracy as the guy who did shoot the gun. And that, I assume, is the theory that the government pursued here. Yeah, that's part of the theory. There's the criminal conspiracy under the, you know, Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, you know, the traditional hacking charges, which are, you know, Section 371 conspiracy. But again, there's also the Arms Export Control Act and ITAR violations, which don't rely on a conspiracy theory. It's there was an ITAR authorization that had been granted to the U.S. company, and these guys violated it by acting outside the auspices of the U.S. company, jumping ship to the local company, continuing the same activity without applicable ITAR authorization. You know, basically under so, the ITAR, you need authorization to do everything and anything. And this authorization was no longer applicable once they jumped ship and they were told that. Yep. So I, the, the other thing quickly that I just wanted to look at is this is a deferred prosecution agreement, a DPA. And, you know, if you're a federal prosecutor, getting a DPA is a little like kissing your sister. It's not satisfying. It, it, you know, you you didn't you didn't join the, the the U.S. Attorney's Office to bring in DPAs, and and so one of the questions is why did they settle for a DPA? What what do you think they're getting? What are the cross cutting pressures that might have led them? And they they really hammered these guys with everything short of jail time, but they didn't send them to jail time. They do get cooperation. Is it cooperation that they were looking for? Uh, are there other people they might indict? Or is this a matter of diplomatic uh, leverage? It's, it's kind of hard to say why they hit them so hard in everything except jail time. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, I think there's a number of 
probable reasons for that. You know, there's the obvious, as you said, the diplomatic sensitivity. You know, do you want a trial where you're, you know, talking about, you know, our intelligence support for the Emiratis? Probably not. Oh, of course, there's know. a gray male element to this. They, in fact, what they're going to say, and this is this makes a lot of sense. They could say, well, you know, in order to explain why I thought what I was doing was legal, I need to explain what I used to do for the U.S. government, so you can see exactly how close it was. And let me tell you about all the times that I step back and let somebody else hit return. And I thought that was fine. And, and all the government lawyers who came in and told me it was fine. So there are, they were afraid that if they went to trial, they would end up with all that stuff in the record or fighting over it in a state secrets privilege context or a, a classified information procedures act problem. So at the end of the day, when they thought about whether they really wanted to go to trial, they said, no, we're not worth it. Yeah, that makes sense. Right. Yeah. And you almost all, you almost never see a trial, especially on a complex, you know, kind of corporate case like this under export controls. You know, the government doesn't want, you know, the, the, the standards are very ambiguous. Is this special, is this an, uh, you know, an uncontrolled, you know, limited capability exploit that was exported? Or at what point did it become ITAR controlled and specially designed for intelligence purposes? It's very ambiguous. And then you know, did the at what point did the did the defendants act willfully and you know know and that they were violating the ITAR? What did they understand about the ITAR? And you know, what assurances did they get from the U.S. government from their Emirati employer about its relationship with the U.S. government? It's a mess for the U.S. to take this you know to take an overly aggressive and confrontational posture on this type of case. And I think you know it's it's pretty it's a big step you know in this world for them to have brought this type of case. Okay, and and I think it was that was the Washington District of uh, Columbia, the U.S. Attorney's Office, not known for doing uh, really high-profile criminal cases like SDNY or maybe even EDNY, not known for doing national security cases like EDVA. So it's good on them; they should be happy. Yep. And the national okay, so uh, Michael, I want to go back to what the U.S. government is doing that is similar to the uh, Chinese government in terms of their response to big tech and what I characterized it as just uh, the President Xi saying, hey, all you bureaucrats with a beef, go ahead and uh, work it out on these guys. And I get that sense that in antitrust law, we're seeing sort of uh, let a flower, a lot of a thousand flowers bloom in terms of rolling back the Bork era. So, what's actually happening in competition policy now that we actually have a few people starting to make it at the at, at where the policy level meets the career level, which is where most lasting policy gets made? So I don't know if it's a thousand flowers or if it's a thousand grains of sand that are being thrown into the gears of, of, of deal making. At least that, that's the attempt. So I'm, I'm counting at least five things that the Biden administration has done in the antitrust to sort of slow things down despite the merger wave that we're having. Number one, they stopped granting early termination in deals back in February. And maybe, gee, maybe that was because of, of pandemic. But, you know, we're now a long time past that. And, and some deals you can look at for two minutes. There's not an antitrust issue here, but they still have a 30-day waiting period if there is a 30-day waiting period that applies. So number two, this is in July, 
They rescinded a former policy that had deleted prior notice and prior approval clauses from, from merger consent decrees. So what that means in English is now if you can enter into a consent decree to resolve your deal, you're also subjecting your company to prior approval requirements on, on deals going forward, even if they're below Hartscott value. So these consent decrees have, have always been a kind of little bespoke little regulatory program for whoever signs up to them. And it, it, the FTC and Justice do it because they're not sure they can get that as a full policy, but they've got these guys under their thumb and by God, they're going to impose their idea of a good regulatory scheme. And one of them is you should come back and get all your mergers approved with, by us. Uh, yes, and you know they're not totally bespoke because they're important precedents. Back in 1995, they took out this this uh, provision that said, "Thou shalt not ever do another deal without getting prior approval for it," which is worse than prior notice because it's not even a time frame, not even a, a a running waiting period. It's just you've got to get prior approval. That's been out since 1995. Now it's going to be so that that that's a chilling effect. Number three, the FTC in August announced the practice of of issuing. Close this deal at your own peril, letters when they haven't finished their Hartscott review. So they get the 30 days. At the end of 30 days, they have a choice. They can let the deal go through, or they can issue a request for additional information, or they can say, hey, guys, give us another 30 days. This introduces a, a new fourth. They can say, you know, it, it's I call them sting letters. Every move you make, every step you take, we're going to be watching you close at your own peril. Um, Arguably, it doesn't really add anything. Ask Facebook. The They've always had the right to, to come after you, even on a closed deal. But th- this letter is also a little chilling. Gee, the investigation is still open, they're telling us. Do we really want to close now? So that, that's number three. Number four, they've changed. So the, the, the Hartscott requires a size of, uh, includes a size of transaction test. And what, uh, what what's counted in, in your size of the transaction? For years, the FTC has had a, an interpretation that the assumption of debt doesn't count. And now they've said, no, we're going to count it now. And, and they released a report, I think, last week that, that, that showed that if they had been, had been counting the assumption of debt in the value of the transaction, then there would have been three more deals over the last 10 years that, that Amazon, Alphabet, Apple, Facebook, and, and Microsoft had entered into that would have been hearts got reportable. And Chairman Khan explains that companies have been taking advantage of loopholes to avoid antitrust scrutiny. These aren't loopholes. These are regulations that have been in place. I mean, right. and, and now they're being criticized for following the regulations. So, so that's, that's number four. And, and number five, just last week, they withdrew, the FTC withdrew the vertical merger guidelines that were issued last in... Uh, Last year, in 2020. And which, which a lot of people, I remember, a lot of people said, oh, about time, those old mergers guidelines were kind of showing a lot of rust. Yeah, right. And now there's nothing to show at all if you're before the FTC. There is no guidance. So, you know, that, that doesn't... But but the agencies are working, and this was part of the, uh, the the Biden executive order on competition. FTC, DOJ get together and look at the horizontal and vertical merger guidelines, and they're doing that. The DOJ issued a statement uh, confirming that they're working with the FTC on a new version. They're going to seek public comment, and that's all good. And the DOJ identifies a host of issues. So, so vertical mergers are sort of a mixed bag. You, you might think that if a manufacturer buys its distributor or if a manufacturer buys uh, someone who makes input, you're only going to have one profit margin. You can eliminate double right. marginalization. Maybe that's a good thing. It's more efficient. Um, 
one of the things, one of the issues is how clear should these guidelines be that it's going to be on you, the merging parties, to show that these cost savings are going to be passed on uh, to the customers. That, that, that's one open issue. DOJ statement cites to an article by Steve Salop, who's a Georgetown professor and a friend, and, and Steve has sort of written his own version of, of what the vertical merger guidelines ought to be and, and raising just a, a whole smorg of issues. So you know, we'll see where they end up. But, you know, the, it was a 3-2 vote at the FTC. The Republicans criticized the Democrats for saying, gee, having no guide, guidelines can't possibly be better than, than having at least some guidelines. So I, I think they'll probably work on them pretty quickly. So that, that's, I think, a campaign to help slow things down, although the merger wave continues. All right. Uh, well, that, that will be interesting. And, I, you know, I have to say, I, I realize, and you see this in the FTC's talk about Facebook, the, the sort of buyer berry is the strategy of all these mergers. But, you know, most of Silicon Valley companies got big not by buying companies, but by just out-competing them. And yeah, sure, they bought some companies that were tiny, you know, 20 people. I, you know, the idea that that has changed, that changed the course of economic history always struck me as a little odd. But all right, that's where we are. Pete, TikTok is getting GDPR review, which means it's privacy review in Europe. The Irish commissioner is looking at them over children's data, where they've been hammered by a bunch of people because TikTok's pretty popular with kids. But they're also looking at transfers of data to China which raises the question whether China is going to get the Schrems treatment that American tech companies have become familiar with over the last 20 years uh, of starting to harass them over sending data back home where it's often easier to, to process. But if you're not allowed to send data to the United States because of the authoritarian activity of the American surveillance state, it's kind of hard to see how you can send it to China. Yeah, Stuart, that's that's right. I'm not going to get too deep into Schrems. I'm going to leave that to you and Maury to continue to debate for the rest of time. But but you're right. I mean, yeah, so, you know, ByteDance, TikTok, they've been getting squeezed by all sides, you know, certainly by the Trump administration, you know, by the Chinese, as Jordan was talking about, and now by the EU, the Irish uh, Data Protection Authority. You know, they claim that they're operating under standard contract standard contractual clauses. They probably are. That's easy. The, the the those clauses continue to exist. The question is whether they are able to resist Chinese surveillance orders, which I don't think so. Right. And the Irish are getting pressure, you know, the Irish authorities, you know, they're getting accused by the EU of not enforcing the laws, you know, they're getting accused by the US of enforcing, you know, in a discriminatory manner against, you know, US companies. So now, you know, they're trying to step up enforcement, they're trying to be more even handed in their enforcement. And yeah, we could see, you know, if we see another court challenge like Schrems, maybe it'll be a problem for China, just like it is for the US. Jordan? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, the the, the sort of TikTok being able to skate through basically unscathed in the past year and a half is a really remarkable coup for them, I guess, but may be coming to an end. We saw Didi shelve plans to expand to the EU as, as a direct consequence of the increased demands that Beijing made clear it was placing on uh, what was happening to Didi's data. And, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If Beijing thinks that sort of ride sharing data is sensitive, then like everyone else probably does too. But you know what they're doing. The fact that 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 narrative hasn't like entirely come home to roost for 
TikTok is is a pretty remarkable one, and I think ultimately something that's that's untenable. I mean, it's easier to stop something from starting than it is to end something which already has you know a, an enormous user base and a you know probably a universe of parents who would have to hang out with their kids more if they weren't able to be on DD uh, be, well, be, be on TikTok. But never underestimate the power of Orange Man Bad. If if Trump wanted to take out TikTok. Uh, half of America rose in its defense, uh, and uh, so it's taken a while for people to say, "Oh, maybe, maybe he had a point." So we'll see. It, uh, but I, I think you're right. The, the don't ask for whom the the bell ticks. It talks for TikTok. Okay, uh, <laughs> Michael, who is Alvaro Bedoya, and why should we care? So he's the new nominee for the fifth commissioner's slot at the FTC. He's a uh, Georgetown law professor who writes about privacy issues. He's written on the harms of, of face recognition technology, which has been a recurrent topic here. He, I just read an article that he wrote on privacy as a civil right, which uh, traces the history of surveillance from the Puritans to Martin Luther King, questions whether an underground railway would be possible today. He's a, he's a leading thought leader on privacy and antitrust issues, so will be the, the, the third Democratic vote. It's going to be an interesting FTC. Yeah, it, the, the, the stuff he wrote on face recognition was not as crazy as I expected when I looked at it. Uh, he says, you know, there might be a bias issue here. You ought to get a look at it. Uh, and he recommends a law that says, you know, check out your, your face recognition for bias. I There's an enormous amount of BS in the artificial intelligence bias literature. He didn't fall for it quite as enthusiastically as some. But yeah, I expect him to... Uh, he, he apparently got a piece of the FAA Reauthorization Act to say, I would like to see, what the, the, the government would like to see an analysis of how CBP and TSA use face recognition at the border, getting on planes to make sure it isn't discriminatory. And what's interesting is they did this study and the statistics were remarkably positive in terms of not finding bias in that context, which is where you're actually looking at a person, kind of one-to-one -one comparison. Is this the person that I'm looking for? So you can put photographs right next to each other. You can do it in a uh, well-lit environment, which that turns out to be remarkably important. But the statistics that came in on that uh, actually really refute the, the claims of that AI is inherently biased. And you know, something I, I've got a, an article coming out on this, so I'll wax on it one more uh, couple of minutes. I said in the article, I said, you know, how can it be discriminatory unless you know how well people would do in making face recognition? And I'm not sure if people are that good at face recognition, especially with features they don't see, you know, different ethnic and r racial groups. What the uh, statistic was that CBP came up with was that their border officials make mistakes 14% of the time compared to about 1% of the time for the artificial intelligence. So it's already substantially less uh, likely to be biased than the alternative, which is having people match the uh, the faces. We're going to hear from him on this. There's a lot of dumb ideas kicking around and trying to cure AI bias by fixing the algorithm often is not a good idea, but it will be interesting to hear him 
interact with Noah Phillips, who's been the voice for privacy, or at least the, the guy who's been most interested in privacy on this FTC. I'm guessing that they will disagree in colorful and uh, interesting ways. All right, a couple of more stories. Uh, John Durham, the special prosecutor, basically charged with investigating what I guess we can call, can't call it Russiagate anymore, maybe Russia, Russia, Russiagate, because it's looking more and more like it was made up. And Durham has an indictment of a lawyer, somebody I know, actually, and have worked with for lying to the FBI general counsel, also somebody I know now that I think about it, a, about what who he was representing when he brought them all the data about the Russian bank that was supposedly uh, in communication with the Trump campaign turned out to be completely bogus. And judging from the indictment, a lot of people who put this in front of the government knew it was bogus when they did it, but they wanted it to last at least until early November, which it more or less did. And Durham is charging this fellow with saying, I'm not here representing anybody in particular. I'm just doing this uh, because I thought it was important that you get this data. I don't think it fooled the FBI any. And so it's going to be a an interesting case because I think the, uh, the lawyer is going to say, ah, come on, you knew exactly who I was representing and who who's bias I was reflecting. And uh, if I even said this, I, I, it shouldn't have made any difference. It wasn't a material misrepresentation. So that'll be the fight, I'm guessing. Interesting whether this is Durham's last shot or whether we're going to get a whole long thing from uh, a long report from him or additional indictments for people caught up in the middle of this fuss. So that's got enough of a tech connection that I thought I'd talk about it. Pete, boy, this is the least surprising thing that the FBI has said. They have no indication that Russia has cracked down on ransomware gangs in the wake of President Biden's yelling at Vladimir Putin about it. Duh, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a shocker. No, but I mean, but you have to think about the broader perspective and where, you know, what we've been seeing over the last few months. We've all been waiting with bated breath for some kind of, you know, reading the tea leaves from this administration following the warnings from President Biden to President Putin about, you know, you have to actually do something, take action against ransomware gangs in your country. So I don't know if this was choreographed or not, but there was a conference last week at National Harbor and Paul Abadi, a senior FBI official, you know, made this statement basically saying, you know, Several months later, no change. We still have a permissive environment in Russia for ransomware. They've had, you know, we've given them information. They've done nothing with it. They've just sat on it as before. And then you had General Nakasone from NSA Cyber Command getting up in the conference and saying, um, you know, we're think we're starting to view ransomware, you know, let, not so, not just as a criminal matter, but as a national security issue. And we're, we're thinking about a surge in our responses to that. You know, I don't know what he meant by that, but it's a little disconcerting. So, you know, I don't know if, what tools the government may use, if anything, if they'll actually kind of take robust action here. You know, there's been, there was a shot across the bow in the sanctions area. Will they actually crack down hard on sanctions? Will General Nakasone's you know, group take some action there. Yeah, but, you know, I, I have to say they're public to the extent that we have seen what they did. And they're just DDoS kings, uh, you know, DDoSing the IRA on Election Day and DDoSing some ISIS sites. This is not 
an impressive display of American technological might. So we'll, it will be interesting. Of course, there's always stuff that happens that we don't get to see, but it, it, if it's happened, it certainly hasn't deterred anybody. So I, I, I will take with a grain of salt Cyber Command telling us they're going to get serious about this because I'm just not sure what that means. All right. Speaking of NSA, Wikimedia took the money I gave them for their good work on uh, uh, Wikipedia and spent it on a dumb lawsuit against NSA over uh, internet spying and wanting to know whether they were victims and wanting to, to, to NSA's authorities to do overseas collection or collection of overseas intelligence that has a U.S. connection. The Fourth Circuit has said, no, you can't do that, which is not a big surprise. They threw out all the intermediate grounds for saying that you can't do that and just let the guy plead, this is a state secret. We can't have this lawsuit without talking about state secrets. We don't want to talk about them. And the Fourth Circuit said, yeah, that's right. Uh, you don't have to talk about them. I, I, I don't know what more there is in that story. Case is over. I guess you can go to the Supreme Court. Good luck with that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there were a couple other elements to it. I mean, the, the court did actually find that Wikimedia has standing here, which Judge Ellis in Alexandria had in EDVA had, you know, that was his grounds for dismissal, I think years ago. The Fourth Circuit said, you know, actually, you know, they do have standing or they could establish standing based on some previous NSA filings with the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. You know, they can validly claim that their user communications have actually been intercepted. So they, you know, actually have concrete injury and grounds for standing. But yeah, ultimately the result was the same. They shut the case down based on state secrets. And, you know, they're basically saying, you know, you're the one, you're the plaintiff, you brought the government into court here. So you can't go, you know, the, they're not using their you know, kind of evidence against you. So you can't kind of compel the government, bring the government into court and compel them to to disclose their intelligence sources and methods. So the state secrets privilege would apply. Okay. And last, just to bring people up to date, because we covered Brazil's Bolsonaro banning social media removing posts during the election, political posts. He, he got his head handed to him by both the Brazilian Senate and the Brazilian Supreme Court, which is a pretty partisan player these days. They both said, you can't do that. And so just like the, and probably soon, the Texas law trying to bring social media uh, censorship to heal, Brazil's effort to do it has also come a cropper. So there's there's movement to do it, but not uh, enough movement in democracies to say it's it's anything other than an authoritarian move at this point. Pete, thank you very much. Michael, that was great. Uh, Jordan, it's great to have you back. Uh, we're going to have to have you on more often because uh, the Chinese are making more internet uh, and technology law news than the United States government by a factor of four to one. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing for America. I guess we'll have <laughs> to see. <laughs> certainly not a good thing for Beijing's version of Silicon Valley. Yeah. If you're listening to this, send us questions and comments at cyberlawpodcast at stepto.com. Go on and rate the show on iTunes, Google Play, wherever you do it. If I see the, the review, I will read it on the air, assuming it is entertaining, whether entertainingly abusive or entertainingly full of praise. And I want to thank Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 375 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson.